Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke with Dr. Haley Hallowell about the gut microbiome. This episode has been such a learning experience for me. I'm usually on my high horse about how I don't study human-related microbiology, and there's so many other organisms out there that we need to study, which is why this podcast has definitely been biased towards protists so far. But I learned so much from Haley during this interview, and I'm now very into microbiome research, and I totally understand why this is such a hot field right now. And I really want to get some folks on in the future to talk about other types of microbiomes and also about other bacteria and viruses with relevance to human health. In this episode, Haley talks about what the gut microbiome is, what the gut virome is, and we also do some myth busting and a lot of speculation about how much poop we have inside of us. So fasten your (laughs) seatbelts. For more information about microbes of the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. All right. Are you ready? I am ready. Okay, perfect. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. I'm here with Dr. Haley Hallowell, who is a postdoctoral scholar in the Suez Lab at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome, Haley. How's it going? Great to be on the pod, Julia. How are you? I'm good. I'm so glad to have you here. Before we start, could you give a summary of your scientific background and what it is that you currently do? Sure. Yeah. So I got my undergrad degree at Gannon University in Erie, Pennsylvania, Originally, I was going to go to medical school after my undergraduate degree, but I had to do research, you know, as a a requirement for my program. So I was working with these little ferns who, when they were gametophyte, their sex was determined environmentally. So basically, environmental cues determine their sex. So what I did was I applied different bacteria that were associated with their roots to see how this kind of messed up the mechanism. And it really did. And I fell in love with host microbe interactions in general. And then I moved towards the gut microbiome for my PhD work at Auburn University with Elizabeth Schwartz, where I characterized and used a novel model of metabolic syndrome and weight gain called the Mangalisa pig. They are these very cute furry pigs. And we were able to track basically the changes in the microbiome, including the viruses, which we will talk about, and how they changed and respond over time to their host developing metabolic syndrome. And then I just recently, last year, started my postdoc at Johns Hopkins in Yotham Sua's lab, shout out Yotham, where we are looking at how environmental factors, so diet, pharmaceutical usage, kind of everything, how those influence the microbiome and the virome, and then in turn, how that modulated microbiome influences host health and disease. Cool. That all sounds really interesting. And so what exactly are we going to be talking about today? We are going to talk about today the gut microbiome. Great. First off, can you define just what a microbiome is and then maybe give some examples of different microbiomes that are out there? 
sure. So I like to think of a microbiome in kind of the big sense, like a forest with all of the different animals, all of the different kind of species living together, working together, you know, some benefit other animals that are in the forest, some negatively affect other animals in the forest. And the microbiome is the same thing, but on a smaller scale. So a microbiome technically can be defined as a community of bacteria, archaea, eukaryotes like fungi, and viruses all living together in a community. And it's associated with a sort of environment. So there are ocean microbiomes, there are soil microbiomes, and within that there are plant and root associated microbiomes. And really you can find microbiomes and general bacteria and viruses everywhere on earth except for one place. It is the Dalal Lake in Ethiopia that is so hostile that no life can live there. But other than that, we can find microbes and microbiomes every single place on the planet, including our own bodies. Interesting. And your list of different microbiomes just gave me a lot of ideas for future episodes. So thank you. (laughs) Um, So there's all these different little ecosystems of microbes on the planet, and you specifically study the gut microbiome. And so What does a gut microbiome look like and why is this something that so many people are interested in studying right now? The gut microbiome is harbored in our intestinal tract. So that's basically from our mouth to our anus. And the microbiome kind of looking through the gut is very, very different. So for example, there's going to be a lot more bacteria and other community members in our colon as compared to say our small intestine compared to our stomach. So they look very different and they also perform different functions within those different areas. And our microbiome, we are kind of coming to find out now, can influence so many different physiological processes in our bodies. So it trains our immune system when we are young. It metabolizes nutrients and provides things like vitamins that our body isn't able to make. It can predispose or protect somebody from the development of disease. The list kind of goes on and on. Cool. I know that you also study the virome. So I was wondering, could you explain what the virome is and how that ties into the gut microbiome? Sure. So the virome is my one true love in science. <laughs> um, I, I think I put this in the email. I call them my viral besties. I, I saw um, <laughs> Yeah, they're, they're really great. And I, I call them the silent modulators of the gut, right? Because whenever we think of impacts of microbiomes on any sort of environment. It doesn't have to be the host. We always think of bacteria and for good reason, because they do play a large role, but the viruses in our gut play a very large role as well. We're coming to find out. So the gut virome is the collection of viruses that live in our gut alongside of bacteria. And most of them are made up of bacteriophages. So that literally means bacteria eater. So they are viruses that don't infect us. So they can't replicate inside host cells or, you know, our cells, but they have bacterial hosts where just like a a viral infection in the human body, they can infect bacteria, they can replicate, they'll burst out and kind of move on. Bacteriophage are actually the, this is my little fun fact about phage. Phage are actually the most abundant agent on earth. I think there's like 10 to the 31st. So if we assume the average length of a bacteriophage is like 100 nanometers, 
if we lay every single phage on the planet end to end, it would equal 600 billion trips to the sun and back. Wow. It's insane how many there are. They really outnumber their host 10 to 1. So in the gut, that is a large component of the virome. There are some eukaryotic viruses in there as well, but we don't know what they do in the gut. We don't really know their function yet. Okay. And so funnily enough, I was talking to my roommate this morning about nematodes because they are the most numerous abundance in number, not biomass, but they're the most numerous animal on the planet. And there's supposedly 10 to the 20 nematodes on the planet. So just to put it into context, you said there's 10 to the 31 phages on the planet. So that's 10 to the power of 11 more of those bazillions more. So I don't know. number. Yeah, I don't know if that my little explanation further confuses people listening to this, but there's a lot more of these than anything else on earth, it sounds like. Absolutely. It's unfathomable to think about how many are on the planet. And so we have lots of different microbes living in our guts and in our bodies. And in the bacteria in particular, they also now have these viruses that are interacting with them by infecting them. And since the bacteria in our guts have effects on our health, I guess by the transitive property, it seems that the viruses infecting those bacteria are then going to have some impact on our health. So could you lay out some of these effects from the viruses? Sure. I kind of categorize these things into two different groups. So we can think of phage as affecting our bodies through affecting the composition of their host. So for example, my work in graduate school. So what we did was we took these little piglets. They were called Mangalitsa pigs. So these are another little fun fact. They are native to Hungary and they are a furry pig species. And they naturally gain weight and develop metabolic syndrome because they are missing the leptin receptor. The leptin receptor is basically the receptor in our brain to sense leptin, which is the fullness hormone. So basically they eat and eat and eat and they don't get that fullness cue. So they very readily develop metabolic syndrome. So what we did was we took these little mangalids of piglets and we tracked them over time as they developed metabolic syndrome and, and gained weight. What we found was that even just after a week on this high fat diet, the bacteria were very resilient to this time scale. The bacteriophage, we saw dramatic changes in them after a week, even though the, we're not seeing changes in bacteria. And, and eventually, you know, the bacteria changed along with the phage over time. But all to say, bacteriophage can even be sensitive to changes in gene expression in bacteria. Uh-huh. So it doesn't even have to be changes in abundance or composition. It can merely just be gene expression. So there's lots of evidence to say that during a lot of these non-infectious intestinally derived diseases, such as IBD, we see major changes in the virome. And for a long time, we worked to kind of characterize how the virome changes in certain diseases, but we didn't really get any sort of mechanism. So currently there's a lot of work being done looking at the mechanism for why these bacteriophage change and is specifically like what those changes are causing in the host. So that that's one camp. So, and then also phage kind of affecting their, of course, bacterial host abundance, 
those bacterial hosts do some sort of function, whether it be disease prevention or promoting the development of disease, changing those bacterial populations and the composition of them that can lead to disease in some cases. So on the other side, we now have evidence from recent papers that bacteriophage can actually directly affect host physiology independent of their host. Wow. Um, so some of the first evidence that came out that, for example, bacteriophage uh, of the gut can directly influence the immune system. I don't know if ever, everybody else will, but I think it's super cool. Came from a June Rounds lab in 2019, where they took uh, germ-free mice and they gave them a... a so germ-free mice... No, I'm going to interrupt you because I took a microbiome class years ago and germ-free mice was something that we learned a little bit about and they're very interesting to me. And when you were saying your last point, I wrote down a note, ask about germ-free mice. So good. Explain yeah, what germ-free mice are. Okay, sure. So germ-free mice are mice that are basically bred to be devoid of microbes. So they're very hard to, well, I wouldn't say hard. It's, it's a lot of work to basically grow up a germ-free colony. So you have to pretty much like continually try to sterilize these mice through antibiotics and other methods to get them devoid of microbes. And then once they are devoid of microbes, then it's very expensive and a lot of work to keep those colonies going. So these mice have absolutely no bacteria, viruses, anything inside them or on them. Wow. And they have some weird stuff. I'm not, I'm not going to go too, into anecdotal evidence, but I've worked with germ-free mice before and they can be a trip sometimes. But we do know that they have an underdeveloped immune system. They have a kind of underdeveloped intestinal landscape. So we don't see these nice crypts and villi that we typically see in, in an animal with an intestinal tract. Yeah, so, so they have some weirdness to them, but they can be really invaluable when we're trying to find causal mechanisms between the microbiome and some phenotype. Cool. Yeah. And that makes me think about the forest analogy you gave before, which I think was really good because I, when you were just explaining that with the mice, I was thinking, okay, like mice without microbiomes is probably like a forest without fungi or something. Like there's nothing breaking things down into soil. And maybe at first from far away, the forest would look like a forest. But if you really went in there, it would probably be weird, weird and different and messed up. So that's really yeah, interesting. Exactly. Yeah, so there was a paper from 2019 from June Rounds Lab where they basically gave these germ-free mice a cocktail of Enterobacteriaceae viruses. So basically, I, I think they were like E. coli targeting viruses. And what they found was that these viruses were able to stimulate the immune system to create inflammatory cytokines. So basically, huh. the messengers of the immune system to get up and going different immune cells and, and create some sort of inflammation. So that was really cool to see. And then one of my favorite papers that came out, I want to say in 2021, it was a science paper. I will, I will give Julia the link to the paper because I can't remember what the lab was that it came out of, but science 2021, what they did was they took basically a cell-free viral sample from the guts of healthy human patients and then patients with IBD. And what they found was if you took basically these isolated viruses, so they got rid of all bacteria, bacterial parts, everything that could really cause inflammation on their own, and they put it in culture in the lab, so in vitro with a bunch of different immune cells. And when they did that, they noticed that the viruses isolated from 
patients with IBD stimulated an inflammatory response in these immune cells. And viruses from the healthy patient did not stimulate any sort of inflammation. So kind of pointing to perhaps these viruses are doing more than just influencing their host. They can have direct impacts on the immune system. That's fascinating. And I guess that makes sense. I don't work on humans or animals, but I think a lot about in my work, the different microbes in different environmental ecosystems out in like ponds or the ocean. And, you know, viruses have really big impacts there external to just bacteria. And I guess maybe I don't, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but maybe this effect on humans didn't get looked at at first because we're just like one human. But I guess, you know, our body has so many cells, it kind of makes sense that everything inside of us is interacting with everything inside of us that's a part of us, right? Oh, yeah, it, a- absolutely, absolutely. And I think especially for the virome, I think we're only just beginning to understand how this group of I don't want to call them organisms because I will make people upset, but agents is what I like to call them. Uh, you know, how these this group of agents kind of impact host physiology. And I think it's gotten a lot easier because we're able to kind of identify what viruses exist in our gut through sequencing. So the way that I study the microbiome and the virome is by collecting intestinal tissue or poop samples. Basically, we have little porta potties that we collect poop samples from mice and it's quite cute. Um, Yeah, very cute. So I collect those, I can extract the DNA and then we can have it sequenced. So I see all of the DNA sequences that are in my given sample. And then I can use uh, computational tools to actually identify who's in there. So kind of the first part of putting a mechanism is, you know, how viruses in our gut affect the host is we got to know what viruses are there and, you know, which ones might be causing the disease. So through sequencing and Sequencing has gotten cheaper. We have much better tools to identify viruses now. So that really was the first step is kind of getting over the the computational barrier. But the other really big barrier we have is actually cultivating these viruses in the lab. I think now this is a really rough estimate because it's hard to estimate this kind of stuff. But I think like less than 1% of all phages on the planet have actually been cultured in lab. And if we look at the human gut, I think it's close to like 90% of all the viruses in our gut. We know that they're viruses based on what their DNA looks like and kind of the genes in their genome. Not that their DNA is different, but you know what I mean. Like, yeah. We know that they're viruses, but we have no idea who they are, who they infect. So there's still a lot of, of discovery that we need to do. Yeah. All of this work that you're talking about and that you're doing is in the realm of immunology and human health, which is something that I don't know that much about from my own research. But I do know that to get work in human health and immunology funded, there obviously has to be some big future outcomes for humans. And I know you're saying, you know, we'll understand how these things affect the immune system of the hosts. But are there even more distant goals of this kind of research, like new therapies? Or what are some things you hope to learn from the research you're doing in the broader field that it's part of? Yeah, so here I'm going to kind of loop back in the the bacteria too and just kind of talk like yeah. generally about the microbiome. So I think really where the field is moving is towards like a personalized medicine or precision mm. medicine approach. So great example of this is probiotics. So we hear a lot about probiotics in mainstream media and how they might just be this cure-all, but it's not for every person. And we're just now kind of understanding why probiotics work for some people 
and why probiotics don't work for some people. The same thing with diet. So for example, the microbiome can influence how you respond to say dietary interventions if you're a type two diabetic or you're trying to lose weight. So so the long-term goal is perhaps we can look at somebody's microbiome, look to see who is in it and tailor a diet or a treatment regimen, something specific to that person based on how we can predict through say machine learning algorithms or other models, we can predict how they're going to respond. The other thing that we're kind of working towards in the same realm, perhaps as probiotics, is more like microbial-based therapeutics. And there's still a lot of work that needs to be done in this field, but perhaps we can use microbial-based therapeutics to help alleviate symptoms of intestinally-derived diseases. Also, again, help alleviate metabolic syndrome or other kind of diseases that have a really close link to a a dysregulated microbiome. Lots of things there. And then the other thing is phage therapy, kind of getting back to viruses. So phage therapy was discovered a very long time ago, like 1920s, 1930s. But because antibiotics were so much cheaper, they were easier to kind of give out and store, they became a lot more popular than phage therapy. And phage therapy is still used very rarely in in other parts of the world and once in a while in in the U.S. But there's been some really cool stuff that came out lately, especially, you know, with the rise of antibiotic resistance, kind of having an alternative is really important. And again, a lot of work, I think, has to be redone. And we, we kind of really have to understand the phages that we're using and how it's going to affect an individual person's microbiome and body. But There's been a lot of really good work that's come out saying that phage therapy is actually a viable alternative to antibiotics. So I'm excited to see what kind of where all of these these avenues kind of go in the long term. Awesome. And phage therapy is like when they give you viruses that do things that cure whatever ailment you have, right? Is that what that is? (laughs) Yeah. So, you know, when you get an antibiotic, it's not specific to the bacteria that you are getting a disease from. So with phage therapy, the goal is to come up with a single phage or a cocktail of phage that will specifically target the bacteria that is causing some sort of infection, but leave all of the other bacteria in our body untouched. Cool. I think there's been work looking to see if we can apply it topically, like on the skin to treat skin infections. We can take them orally to treat intestinal infections. Um, yeah, lots, lots of really cool stuff. But I believe there was also work in treating recurrent UTIs with phage therapy oh, as well. Yeah, that's interesting. So, yeah, so a lot of cool stuff. Well, so you mentioned earlier about dysregulated microbiomes and curing all sorts of ailments you just spoke yeah. about. And so this summer, I had E. coli. And (laughs) it was hands down the worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Mm -hmm. I'll spare you the details. But like, it was just, it was horrible. (laughs) I've had all sorts of health issues in my life. I've never had a single digestive issue. And ever since I had this, I had a really bad E. coli infection. Like ever since this infection, I've had a bunch of weird digestive issues and I've had a few mild recurrences of E. coli right after. It was really bad. So I went to the doctor. I've had all these tests done. Everything comes back normal. And my doctor's conclusion and like I guess my conclusion from reading up on this stuff while I was dealing with it is that what's probably happening to me is that I am in dysbiosis. My gut microbiome has been affected by this bacterial infection that I had. And my doctor said, really, what I just need is time, time to recover. 
I asked, should I take probiotics? She and I both know, like, I don't know. Maybe I should take them. Maybe they'll help. Anyway, could you explain, is dysbiosis the right word? Is that legit? Could you explain what that is or what this dysregulation is? And not to me specifically, because I know you're not a medical doctor, but... um, But like, you know, like what, what is it? People are always saying, oh, like my gut is messed up. My gut's not regulated. What is that? (laughs) Yeah, that is a fantastic question. And I know this is one of the things I really hoped we could talk about because personally, so it is used in the field and, and that is fine. But personally, I do not like the word dysbiosis. Okay. Because when we think about it, what does dysbiosis actually mean, Right. Dysbiosis in one person can look totally different from another person. Dysbiosis in different diseases can look very different. And so we can't give it. And dysbiosis in me is like probably perfect biosis for the E. coli that are living in me. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's all perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So it, it can look different in so many different situations that we can't really give it a, a specific scientific or clinical definition other than it's different than baseline. But that's really not going to tell you a lot, you know? So I personally like to use dysregulated microbiome or disease or phenotype associated microbiome more than dysbiosis because I feel like even dysregulated a little bit, I I feel like we need to use more descriptive terms of that. So yes, dysbiosis is a thing it's used in the field. I personally do not like to use it because I feel like I can't give it a true definition. No, that makes a lot of sense. And and it, it is interesting because it's hard. I know that human and gut microbiome research, it's such a hot field right now, but it's still so new. So, you know, you think I'm going to go to the doctor and she'll give me a pill and I'll be better. But I think I've learned firsthand this year that, that she didn't know what was going on with my microbiome. And even when I had this infection, I went to the hospital, I went to urgent care, and they were just like, we don't even give antibiotics for this. You just have to let it run its course. But we know because so many people have had E. coli that it will go away on its own. It's self-limiting. The other microbes in your gut will shut it down eventually. So I don't know. I feel like I kind of got a taste of a little bit of what all this microbiome stuff is about. I, yeah, you're you're 100% right. I, I think as a field, we're moving towards this. And again, I think it's because a lot of these barriers that were in place for a really long time, such as, you know, sequencing and models and all these, uh, you know, all sorts of different things, they're not there anymore, or, or they're becoming significantly less of a barrier, you know what I mean? So I think really a lot of the next steps and a lot of these different kind of stories of microbiome tales, I I think (laughs) moving into clinical trials is going to be a really big thing, right? Because a lot of the stuff that we see, sure, there there are definitely human studies out there. They are really great and they have informed a lot of things. And I can can say from, from personal knowledge that these clinical trials are starting to inform clinical practice in some ways, but I think a lot more work has to be done for broader demographic of clinical trials before we can really put these into practice. But you're totally right. And this is one of the frustrating parts is is being a person that studies this is people come to me all the time. Well, not all the time, but you know, sometimes and be like, oh, you know, I I have this infection and I feel really crappy and my doctors don't know what to do. Or I have IBS and nobody's telling me how to treat it. You know, like, what do I do? And one, I'm not their medical doctor, but two, even if they're a friend, it's like, I don't know what to tell them because there's so much conflicting literature, you know, like, some things there are consensus on, but what probiotics to take? Will kombucha help? Will this help? Will that help? I don't know. <laughs> there needs to be yeah. more work. And I feel like a crappy person saying that, but that's the truth. 
Well, and what you're just saying and what you were saying before about personalized medicine makes me think about humans are also different. Like we're a population, but we're spread across the whole world. And I remember learning in a class years ago, there have been studies done people in the Mediterranean versus people in East Asia versus people in the US and their microbiomes look different. Is it because of what they eat or are they eating what they do because of their microbiome and all these questions? And so I guess my question is then, do we know what determines which microbes are inside of us? Do we know that? Um, Generally, genetics doesn't have a ton to do with it. It's a lot of our environment. So Mm -hmm. it starts from birth. So babies that are born C-section versus natural birth will have different starting microbiomes because a baby born C-section, their first kind of colonization is the air, is sterile things that it's, you know, not sterile things, but like hospital things that it's touching. Yeah. Babies born, you know, natural birth get those vaginal microbes first colonizing their gut. So it starts there and then it can be geographical location. So there's differences in bacterial populations across the world based on temperature, humidity, just general geographical characteristics. And then also diet is a very big thing. Medication that you take is a very big thing your general environment, who you live with, Mm. Um, you know, people that you come in close contact, you will have a more similar microbiome with them. Yes. So, so yeah, it's a lot of stuff, but genetics have little, you know, a, a tiny role, but most of it is environment. Yeah, that is really cool. And this made me think this is so stupid, but I think this will segue us into what I want to talk about next. Because this is such a stupid anecdotal story that might have no basis in science. But I remember like 10 years ago, I used to never get cavities. And I know that oral microbiome is a whole other thing that people are working on. But I used to never get cavities growing up. And I remember I started getting cavities in college. I went to the dentist and I had a few cavities. And I was like, what the hell? Where did my perfect teeth go? And they were like, do you have a boyfriend? And does he have cavities? At the time I did and he did. And they were like, and this is my dentist. So he's not a microbiome researcher, but he said something like, you know, when you're around people and you're sharing your microbiomes, your microbiomes are becoming more similar. And those bacteria are what's causing cavities. And I was like, ew, and gross. And, you know, we broke up and I have not had a cavity since. (laughs) So that very anecdotal, but very interesting. Okay. (laughs) And I will say, I believe it's Profiromonas bacteria are associated with cavities in the gut. I can't remember for sure, but I think it's like Profiromonas gingivalis is associated with Sounds oral, yeah. Totally wrong, but it sounds right. It sounds right. Um, But yeah. Okay, I get a lot of cavities, and my dentist said, you know, sometimes people just have soft dentin, and it oh. just happens. And I'm like, okay. But no, there there definitely is a basis for the oral microbiome, I think, uh, predisposing somebody to cavities. But I I don't know if the, I've ever seen anything about people like saliva swapping, giving yeah, other giving each other cavities. That's that's very interesting. I don't know. Though. Maybe this was like a very sex negative dentist. Maybe he was just like, no <laughs> one should be touching. Uh, (laughs) but okay this stupid story I just told which is anecdotal and not scientific brings me to this point that you and I have discussed which is that I guess with any human related hot topic in science there comes a lot of non-scientists speculating and peddling things 
With this kind of attention comes misinformation and disinformation. So I know there's a lot of pseudoscientific claims or new agey remedies that are being spread to the masses. And I know that you are really good at dispelling some of these fallacies because I know that you do this on TikTok and your TikTok is very cool and I will link it in the show notes. So we're going to play a little game and I'm going to make some statements And I just want to say that these are not statements that I necessarily believe. They're statements I'm making for the purpose of this game. And then can you tell me if they're true, false, mostly false, and maybe explain why? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. I think some of them maybe we've covered, so maybe I'll skip over them, but I've got a long list. Leaky gut syndrome is real and is something I should be worried about. I'm going to say that is... Half true, half false. Okay. (laughs) The first part of the question, is leaky gut a real thing? It is a real thing. So that part is true. But do you have to worry about leaky gut? Probably not. So leaky gut is definitely a real thing. And leaky gut is defined by basically either whole bacteria or bacterial parts escaping from our intestine and either kind of interacting with the local immune system in our intestine or traveling systemically and interacting with, with our immune system in our body. We see leaky gut in specific disease phenotypes. So for example, Crohn's disease, it's a genetic disease, but it literally causes holes in your intestinal lining. So of course, we're going to see bacterial translocation, which is leaky gut. We also see this in things like metabolic disease, where we have kind of a weakening of the intestinal barrier. Basically anything that's going to cause a weakening in the intestinal barrier is going to promote leaky gut syndrome, or just basically what I call translocation of bacteria and bacterial parts. Um, Okay. There is evidence that this exists in both humans and mice, but the actual consequences of this, especially in people that don't have specific diseases that these are associated with, we don't really know. The slew of very general symptoms that people will tell you is leaky gut is probably not leaky gut unless you have a specific disease phenotype that's associated with it. Okay. So if someone is like, drink this green juice, it will stop your leaky gut. That's bullshit. But if someone is like, I have Crohn's disease and my doctor says I have a leaky gut, then yes, they probably do. Yeah. One of the other things on this list is issues of the gut can cause depression and other mental health ailments. Yeah, so that is correlatively true, I will say. Okay. (laughs) Correlatively somewhat true. There is a very real connection between the brain and the gut. I won't go into it here because it's a little off topic, but one of my favorite new papers that just came out was from the Taste Lab where they were defining a mechanism by which our gut promotes the motivation for exercise in our brain. It is mind-blowing. It's very cool. Go check it out. But yeah, there's a very strong connection between our gut and our brain. Unfortunately, a lot of the work is very correlative. Okay. Um, So what I mean by that is we can take patients with a specific ailment, we can look at their microbiome, or we can induce this in mice and look at their microbiome, and we can know what changed, but we don't have mechanisms for if those two things are related. Okay. That makes sense. The next one. We all have parasites in our guts and we need to remove them. Colonics and cleanses are a good way to keep my body healthy. (laughs) That is false. Unless you 
Specifically, drink water that is contaminated with a parasite. You don't have pounds and pounds of parasites in your body that are making you sick. Unless you have traveled to a region of the world where you could pick up parasites, you are okay. And colonics, honestly, in my opinion, they do a lot more harm than any benefit that they could provide. I mean, think about it. Like you are really kind of pushing up there a ton of water and you run the risk of damaging your intestinal lining. You're wiping out a lot of the bacteria. So this is a way that we can prep for, say, fecal microbiome transplants or colonoscopies by really like cleaning out the gut, cleaning out some of the bacteria there. So you're kind of doing the opposite of what you want to do is while you're you're kind of like, you know, removing a lot of the good bacteria using colonics. So we don't have parasites and colonics. I don't know what benefit they have. No. Okay. So again, if your doctor tells you to do it, do it, but you probably yes, don't ever yeah. have to do I am it. a PhD. I'm not a medical doctor. <laughs> I'm not giving you medical advice. This is just my opinion. <laughs> yeah. And a doctor will tell you to do it so you can get a colonoscopy. They won't tell exactly. you, to, they won't tell you to do it for like a spa day or whatever. <laughs> sound like a fun spa day. No, I don't, I don't get it. Okay. We kind of talked about this one. I should take as many probiotics as possible to keep a healthy gut and boost my immune system. Yeah, so I get a lot of flack about this on my TikTok because people want me to tell them exactly what to take. And this is what I was kind of talking about earlier. They want me to tell them exactly what is going to heal their gut. And and might I say, if I can have a little bit of a hot take here. Yes. You don't need to heal your gut. If you are not having very specific intestinal associated symptoms that can be associated with any sort of disease, even like IBS or or something like that. If you are just having these general symptoms that everybody has sometimes because they're dehydrated or whatever, and not to invalidate people that have these symptoms, but it's not because you have to heal your gut. People use that to sell products or to push this pseudoscience that's super popular on social media. So what I said about probiotics before and, and kind of what I tell people whenever they ask me this question on TikTok, I've said this many times, if something works for you, do it. That's great. I'm not telling you not to do something that works for you, but also it's not going to work for everybody. And probiotics are like that. And again, we're all just kind of now starting to understand why probiotics work for some people and why they don't. It has, I think, a lot to do with your starting microbiome. Mm. So probiotics will not always work for you. You can try them if you want. It's also interesting because I have to think there's hundreds or thousands or more different microbes that could be in your gut. So the ecosystem of your microbiome is so complex. And the other thing is you can't just like go to the bacteria store and pick out a specific bacterium in a probiotic pill and take it. You go to the store and there's lactobacillus, acidophilus. There's like what three you can pick from, right? (laughs) So unless you're missing one of those two, what is it going to do? Yeah. And, you know, some of those are very helpful bacteria. But again, like it's all about caveat. Some probiotics don't actually have to colonize to have an effect, but most of them do, right? They they have to colonize your gut to be able to make whatever metabolites they're going to make or whatever pieces of themselves are going to have the beneficial effect. They have to be there. And it's all about whether or not your gut is permissive for these things to colonize and grow. And to this, I just want to plug this a little bit. One of my new favorite things in this space, and it's very kind of in its infancy, but I think it's really cool, is the concept of postbiotics. Cool. Um, So postbiotics (laughs) 
are basically a way where we kind of remove live bacteria completely from the equation and we isolate out and grow up the beneficial metabolites or proteins that these bacteria produce or natively have in their structure. And we just give that cool rather than the live bacteria. So again, lots of caveats that come with it. Lots of kind of like scalability issues with that. But I think it's a really cool way to remove that colonization factor, colonization yeah, stuff yeah. from probiotics and give you just the beneficial metabolite or protein. Yeah, that's interesting. It's like a like a special, specific little vitamin. Yeah. Okay. And so kind of on that note, this is something that bothers me because I feel like people use these words interchangeably. The next one is prebiotics and probiotics are the same thing. That is false. Okay. Probiotics are the uh, live organism. Well, they don't have to be live, but they are the actual organism that is given to do its beneficial thing. And prebiotics are basically just like food for the probiotics. So they are things that are supposed to help beneficial bacteria bloom in your gut. Next one. I've got a bunch. Sorry that I'm drilling you with these questions, but... And I have a few. If you don't answer them, I will have a few that I'll just throw some hot takes as well. So Because this is really fun. This is really fun. Okay. (laughs) Antibiotics are bad for the gut and we shouldn't take them. Oh, okay. Well, that's a really complicated question. I will say true for the first part, false for the second part. If you have an infection, take your antibiotics. (laughs) Take, Take them. Are antibiotics bad for our gut? Yeah, some of them can be. It depends. All antibiotics, if we take them orally, are going to wipe out some parts of the gut microbiome. I think, and granted, this was a very heavy cocktail of metronidazole, neomycin, and vancomycin in mice, but that's basically what we use to kind of wash out the gut microbiome. Like if we want to try to transplant something or we want to make what we call specific pathogen-free mice, so these are mice that are just colony mice that we can get from Jackson Labs, right? If we want to try to make them a little germ-free, we can give them this metronidazole, neomycin, and vancomycin cocktail, and not completely, but very much wipe out their microbiome. So yeah, antibiotics can totally wipe out your microbiome. Eventually, it will recover. You can eat a, a diverse diet to kind of help repopulate. If you've had luck with probiotics in the past, sure, try them out. Again, not a medical doctor, not telling you what to do, but eventually your microbiome is going to recover. So antibiotics can negatively impact your microbiome, but you still should take them okay. if your doctor prescribes them. Okay. Makes sense. Eating fermented foods will fight inflammation in my body and heal my gut. <laughs> I am going to say the jury's still out on fermented foods, but I don't think it's going to help inflammation or heal your gut for reasons I said before. So I just don't think that there has been enough work on fermented foods to say if they actually work. I know that there is a kombucha clinical trial going on, I think, in California right now. Cool. Um, Yeah, but I just, I don't think we have enough research to actually say if they work or not. Yeah, and I think a lot of people trying to sell stuff, like, because I love fermented foods. I think fermented foods are great. But people trying to sell stuff are always like, this will stop the inflammation. And I'm like, first of all, sometimes it's good. It's sometimes it's good to have an inflammatory response to something. Like, (laughs) yeah, but okay. Um, How about, I can prevent obesity by treating my gut. 
Okay, well, first disclaimer, and I know this you do not feel this way, but we don't no. need to prevent obesity yes, or I agree. It's a hundred percent okay. Yes. Um, I took this from the internet. <laughs> okay, yeah. This no, claim. I took fine. this claim from the internet. I just want to say out to the masses that we don't need to prevent weight gain and it's totally okay. Yes. But can we treat our gut and stop? I would say that's mostly false because in most people, the way to curtail weight gain is by, you know, eating healthy and exercising regularly. And those are both going to have positive impacts on your gut as well as your entire physiology. So I think it goes hand in hand. I don't think you can do one without the other. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, totally. And I was I brought that one up because I feel like I could see these pseudoscience probiotic people being like, oh, this is this is a weight loss pill. Like this is the new thing. Like this everyone should take oh, this. Yeah. 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 <laughs> that is what people are trying to push right now is L glutamine. But we can talk about that oh. later. Well, you talk about it now. Talk about it now. <laughs> Yeah. Okay. So L-glutamine, I actually was doing a little bit of research on this because I want to make a little video about it. A lot of people are asking about L-glutamine, like what does it do? So we actually have pretty limited research on L-glutamine. So so let me, let me say what L-glutamine is first. So it's a non-essential amino acid, which means our body already makes it Mm. and we don't have to get it from our diet. And usually our body is making the right amount of L-glutamine that we don't really need to supplement it. However, in times of like wound healing or intense immune activation, we use a lot of L-glutamine. So, you know, it might not be a bad thing to supplement it. Um, What a lot of people are trying to say now is you can take L-glutamine and this little tagline makes me cringe they say you can heal and seal your gut, Ooh. which I hate. I hate. Like my two, my two like pseudoscience pet peeves rolled into one. Anyway, so you can take L-glutamine and, and it will decrease inflammation. It will increase the barrier in your gut. It will make you less bloated. It will make you less depressed. All of these different things. So looking at the literature, there is some evidence to say in mice, for example, that it does increase tight junction, protein expressions, which are the little proteins that hold our epithelial cells together, and it can modulate the immune system. But really, again, the jury's going to be out on this because there's not a lot of clinical trials on yeah. this. So before we can even put that into clinical practice in any way, shape, or form, we have to have more clinical trials with diverse demographics. And I don't know what it is with people and their obsession with trying new things that haven't been proven. Like, I don't want to put anything in my body unless there is evidence to back up that it will not hurt me. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. And, and I see these people get on social media. And again, this, this feels really fat phobic to me sometimes where it looks like they're almost purpose pushing their stomach out to make themselves look really bloated. And they're like, this is what I look like before L-glutamine. And then they suck it in. They're like, this is what I looked after L-glutamine because it decreases bloating and it made me lose weight. And it did all of these things. This is the part that really bothers me is I feel like a lot of the time on social media, these influencers basically weaponize the science and use it to fear monger people and make them think that if, even if they have no symptoms, something is wrong. 
and they need to buy all of these really expensive supplements to fix something that is not wrong in them, you know? Yeah, and that, yeah, so that's not wrong in them. And also people like this idea of these cure-alls for things. And if there was a pill for fixing your gut or making your gut work better, we'd all be taking it. We'd all have it. No one would be hiding it. No one would be covering it up. No one would be like, they don't want you to know. <laughs> rooftops if if somebody was like this will stabilize your microbiome and you will never have another intestinal problem ever again I would be screaming I would be handing it out on the street I'd be so excited but of course that doesn't exist no and if it did whoever is the scientist to come up with it is gonna get like 50 nature papers and and get a really good job (laughs) and get a Nobel prize or something um okay so I have a silly one And then I have a serious question. Okay. I took this from – you could just give a true or false on this one. I took this as a screenshot right off your TikTok. Oh, I know what this is. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to be able to read this without laughing. For every foot of colon, the body can store between 5 and 10 pounds of feces. So if you're just over 5 foot tall, you could easily have 25 pounds of poop stuck in your colon. Doctors refer to this poisonous waste as mucoid plaque. When you flush trapped poop out of your intestines, your digestive health improves. And when your digestive health improves, you gain better head-to-toe health. You surge with more energy. You fight off cold and flu. You have a much easier time burning fat and shedding pounds. That is false. <laughs> that is very false. Um, I'm 5'9". I'm 5'9". If that was true, how much I would be just loaded with poop. You'd have like <laughs> probably like 40 pounds in you right now. Oh, my God. You'd have more than like triplets <laughs> in your colon. That's even that. Yeah, that's false. I don't remember exactly how much poop on average we have. Hold on. Pause. I'm going to look it up and we'll put it in here because okay. I think this is important. It's funny. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. Okay. I can't find it. It's I looked fine. it up one time. I th- oh, let me. Well, it must be ounces. We must have ounces of poop in us. It... I think it's up to like maybe like two pounds if you're really okay. constipated. Okay. But yeah, we, we have nothing compared to... <laughs> to you know 10 pounds per foot of our colon that is oh just god it, it's, it's not even physiologically possible even if you were constipated for a long time i don't think that you could make that much poop. well and okay so if poop is in our large intestine and colon and stuff i don't know you know where it becomes poop or whatever i don't know the specifics but our large intestine is large because it's like wider but it's not miles long it's you know like a couple feet long like how much poop could be in there I think it's like, again, let me look this up. Um, <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, well, yeah, it's about six feet long. Oh, six um, feet long. Okay. It's six feet long, and our small intestine is about 22 feet long. Yeah, that's way longer. And that, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, no, you cannot. So, what would that be? If it's six feet, that would be 60 pounds of poop. If we had 10 pounds of poop, <laughs> Per foot. That's it. No. <laughs> that's a that small child be... in our colon. Yeah, that's that's definitely false. Okay. <laughs> a lot of this is silly, but a lot of this is serious. And I guess to make it 
more meaningful. How do you think listeners can sort through scientifically backed information and pseudoscientific conjecture online or in the media that they might see? You know, people don't want to be wrong. People don't want to hurt their bodies. But how do they know what to believe if they don't have a PhD? Sure. That is a fantastic question. So the first thing that you want to look for is people citing their sources. And you want to see those sources coming from papers. So peer-reviewed, published journal articles, reviews, things like that. The second thing you can do is look at a very reputable website. So those would be like nature.com. They always have really accessible news and views on new um, media. Other website that I really like is from a scientist called Elizabeth Bick. Her website is microbiomedigest.com. She is very cool. She highlights a lot of really good work and she does a lot of scientific sleuthing, which is very fun. And then if you want to kind of look up papers yourself, go to um, just Google PubMed and you will find kind of like the one of the world banks of science papers and you can search any term you want and look it up. So I would say, first of all, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. Look at sources. And then also go do research for yourself, but make sure that you're looking at reputable places to do that research. That's really good advice. And I think I also recommend social media is a really good place for scientists. Like find an accredited scientist and like Uh, don't just follow one. Like so you're on TikTok, right? And you're saying one thing. And if if someone wants to really learn this stuff, follow some scientists on Twitter, on Instagram, on TikTok. If 20 scientists are all saying the same thing and they're linking – real scientific papers, that's some sort of a social media consensus. And I think you can trust that. Don't listen to the one scientist on YouTube who's like screaming about something. If 50 scientists are screaming about something, I would start to say, okay, maybe there's some truth to that. I 100% agree. And I can think of a lot of examples with climate change or or other things. Vaccines. Vaccines where a very, very tiny group of scientists or researchers had a very, very large mouth and presence and kind of dominated the majority of of scientists that were like, no, they're full of shit. Like they're not, nothing they're saying is true. So definitely look for consensus, look for cited works and do your research on reputable websites. Remember that one gynecologist that like didn't even have a medical license anymore that was like, the vaccine is going to kill you. I've seen it. I've seen it. They're Uh shutting me up there. I'm in hiding. I was like, oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yes. Remember that. COVID was a crazy time to be somebody that's even like adjacently related to immunology. Like I remember seeing this TikTok. It was this guy that was like, what it's like to be an immunologist during COVID-19. And it's him screaming in a cold shower. And that was like very, very accurate. (laughs) Yeah. And you know, I'm not even an immunologist, but because, you know, I do all this genomic work, I can't tell you how many family members, friends, acquaintances I had to explain you know, mRNA vaccines too. And I was happy to do it. I totally understand how the vaccine works. And, you know, I want to help people just like they would help me understand their fields if I had a question about it. But people that I know and love were really aggressive towards me at times. You're, you you know, you're indoctrinated, you're brainwashed. And I'm like, I... I'm just telling you how (laughs) RNA works. Like, I, (laughs) I have no agenda. And, you know, based on my 
knowledge of science and molecules and RNA and genomics, if I was worried about the vaccine, I wouldn't have gotten it. I'd be the first one to be like, don't get it. But, you know, all the evidence and research leads to it being safe, you know. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Like, that was honestly one of the reasons why I kind of like stopped using Facebook. Like, I'll use it once in a while. But like, not even my family, but just like people that I was friends with from forever ago. It's like post these things. And at first I would kind of engage. And then I was like, this is so toxic to my mental health right now. I'm already locked in my house. I can't really go anywhere. And these people are are treating scientists like we are out there. Oh, they're killing people ourselves, you know? So yeah, it drove me nuts. And I totally, I totally know what you mean. Yeah, for sure. Well, Haley, this has been so much fun and so informative, and I thank you for educating me and everyone listening. And if listeners want to follow your work, where can they find you? Yeah, so I am on Twitter and TikTok at at Haley Biont, so like a holo Biont, but it's H-A-L-E-Y-B-I-O-N-T, one word. Cool. I will link those things and I'll link paper. I'll link all your stuff. Thanks for coming on today for having me on the pod, Julia. Of course. I thought Haley did an amazing job with this, not only fielding all of those questions and disputing those claims scientifically, but she is really good at quoting specific articles that the information she uses comes from, which is a skill that I and many other scientists don't really have. Making claims and backing them up with peer-reviewed evidence is so important, especially now that we live in a time with so much misinformation and specifically disinformation fed to us by others trying to make money or promote harmful practices. We don't all have scientists at our disposal that we can consult over all of the small matters we encounter each day where some more background information might be useful, but hopefully we can take some of the advice Haley gave us and use that to become more informed individuals who are able to seek out the correct information. And I thank her for that. And now for today's A Cool Microscopic or Small Thing I Saw This Week, where I highlight the work of others on social media. At Shamode underscore lab underscore MMCER on Instagram shared a video of a planktonic brachiopod larva this week. Brachiopods are a type of shelled invertebrate animal, but they are not mollusks. This video is creepy and beautiful, and the organism looks like a little spaceship. Definitely go check it out. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share the podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes of the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks for listening, and I hope you all have a great day. Mm-hmm.